are in our series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. My name is Travis Fleming. Uh, if you're a guest here today, we are honored to have you here with us. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here of uh, Village Bible Church Grace Campus, and uh, it is my delight to open the Word of God together with you today. If you are in need of a Bible, please just stick your hand up. We want to make sure that you follow along with us. Uh, our ushers are going th- in and out throughout the rows, and we'd love to get that into your hands as we go through the text together. Well, um, as we've been going through these very cold days, uh, I received something in the mail uh, several months ago that I absolutely hate, and I'm sure many of you who've had this similar thing happen hate it too, but it was a summons to jury duty. Do you like doing jury duty? Uh, some people do. I do not. I, I, it was the time when it was extremely cold. They canceled school. I was up so early listening to the radio, pleading that it would be excused because it was so, it was the day that it was like the coldest that it's been with the wind chill of negative 45, and, and I did not want to go to jury duty. I've been called different times. I've never actually been called in, but uh, I've been called and, and uh, gone through some of the interview process. And as I went this time, I made my way just hu- with huddled masses of frozen people, popsicles, going in, uh, and I, I, I make my way into the courthouse, the Kane County cur- Courthouse, and the first thing I see is no drinks and no food, and I'm holding a hot thing of coffee, and I'm like, I have to finish this right now. So I drink it down, burn my throat, I get through, I go through all the check bags, and the guy who was the security guard was laughing, because you're a juror, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> he didn't have to drink it like that, you idiot. So felt like an, a moron already, and I walk in, and they got donuts and coffee, and you've got to figure out where you go, and you sit down. And uh, there's this, this video from, like, 1987 playing over and over about what to expect. I don't know why they don't update this, but it shows you what goes on in the court of law. And it's not as if any of us have ever watched a court drama in our life. So they must think that you are Amish and called to jury duty because you have no idea what's going to happen. And you walk in, and you see uh, they, they go through everything that happens. And one of the things that kind of caught me that I, I had not necessarily thought about was the sworn testimony. And we, we've talked about that. You, you've seen this on TV when you put your hand on the Bible and you raise your right hand and you say, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Now, that's changed in our pluralistic culture today. But overall, it stands. And I was thinking about that this past week. And I wanted to find out a little bit where that came from. I mean, does anyone ever thought about that, where that tradition originated? Uh, as I was studying, I found out that this tradition of requiring witnesses, and this is according to Brendan Cromer of Slate Magazine, he says, uh, to swear on honest, an honest oath traces back likely to Roman times. So it's a very ancient practice, and we can even see in the Old Testament that there was uh, swearing of oaths going on. But the Latin word for witness is testis, and it comes from the ancient word for three, a witness being the third observer of events. And what, uh, what that meant was is that uh, there would be something going on, and there would be a neutral third party that would testify to the legality of what was going on or whether it was true or not. But the word oath actually comes not from the Latin, but from uh, the Anglo-Saxon usage. And the Anglo-Saxons would use um, oaths to swear fealty to feudal lords, but also to, uh, to ensure honesty during legal proceedings. And it made its way and codified into Great Britain uh, or to Britain's laws around 930. And, of course, it would continue on. And the phrase, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, is believed to have initially been coined in Old English. Now she feels so smart now. 
um, and it's gone on. What it meant, though, was that the whole truth, meaning that you're going to tell everything that there is, and, or the truth, tell the truth, what you observed, the whole truth, you're not going to leave anything out. We're good at that. We're good at being truthful to a degree. We know how to shade the truth in our own way. And we tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You're not going to sugarcoat it. You're not going to lie about it. But you're going to tell the complete, unarbited truth. Now, it's interesting that they had to have oaths to do this. And we still see these oaths carry on in our day and age. But Jesus comes to us and says, no, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And the question is, is why? Why couldn't there be oaths going on? Well, we're going to see today that in Jesus' time, there was an integrity crisis, just as there is in our time. Very rarely do you hear people to say today, unless they're of the older generation, my word is my bond. Do you remember that? Some of you have been older. You remember the people that were around a long time before, and they would say, my word is my bond, and they meant it. And they would do everything in their power to ensure what they said they did. But today, do people do that? We're used to broken promises with politicians, celebrity scandals. I mean, people say, I didn't do it, and then tests prove that they did. Lance Armstrong, case in point. I mean, think of the Enron scandal. We've got all of these different scandals, and we see that one person is thrown up and to be the sterling example, and then there comes some uh, question of what they did, or their morality, or the legality of it, and they say, I'm, I did what was right. I didn't do anything what was wrong. And then we find out that they did. So it's almost rare today to find people that truly do keep their word and follow through with what they say. And that's what Jesus is talking about today. And as we as believers in Christ need to perform what we say as we look at this integrity crisis that's going on not only in America, but in the churches. And that's what we're going to see today as we, can, as we look and find out what it means to be citizens of this upside-down kingdom, of this heavenly kingdom that God has purposed and purchased us to be in, which means that God has set up his kingdom, which has been inaugurated but not fulfilled, not consummated yet. We won't enter into that kingdom until he comes in all of his glory. But until then, we are to behave as citizens of that kingdom, and Jesus is laying forth how we are to behave, how we are to speak, and how we are to talk. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Father, we come before you knowing how often we've said things and not followed through. Lord, please forgive us. Show us how we are to be men and women of integrity, how we are to follow you, how we are to keep our word, and no matter how difficult it might be to fulfill what we have promised. Lord, I know that there are many that are struggling, some are suffering. I pray that you show yourself to be God, that you speak to them today by, the, by your Holy Spirit, touching hearts and minds, drawing us near to yourself, opening our hearts wide to receive the truth from your word that we might go forth, conform to your image and transform to be more and more like you. Help us to forsake sin, embrace righteousness and holiness, that we might experience and grow in the joy of knowing you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to jump right into our text and see everything that's going on and what Jesus is talking about. Because we are going to see that there was an integrity crisis going on. And uh, maybe, you, we've all done this. It doesn't look 
so different from Jesus' day and age. When Jesus uh, looks at the, or he says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, the problem that Jesus was talking about was people following through with what they said they were going to do. There were civil, while, while there were severe penalties for bearing false witness, people had a way of manipulating or skirting the truth. Just like we have loopholes in our day or reading the fine print. Or as children, when they say they'll do something and they put their hand behind the back, what are they doing? Crossing their fingers, right? Because they're trying to find a loophole for it. And we, we try to get people to believe what we're doing. And when we, we want to say something for emphasis, we say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a in my eye. I mean, we do that because we want people to believe what we're going to say. Or I swear on my mother's grave. She's not dead yet, but, you know, we do that all the time. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles. That's, this is the same concept of what they were doing in that day. And the thing is, is what Jesus is noting is he's saying that there was a big integrity crisis and people weren't fulfilling what they said. So they're trying to emphasize and place themselves closer to God because the closer you would invoke God's name or something closer to him, the more you were showing the reality that you were going to fulfill what you were going to do. The problem is they, didn't, they weren't serious about it. So they, they would say these big things and they wouldn't deliver. And that's what was going on in Jesus' day. And we can see that going on in our day. Politicians make promises right? All the time. And we find out later that they had no, they're not trying to really fulfill the promise so often. They're just trying to get elected and continue on. We have people make promises and go back on their word all the time. But as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, God has something different for us. So we see here, as we're going to walk through this text, that there was, uh, Jesus is drawing our intention to the integrity crisis that was going on in his day. That's number one in your notes. He was drawing attention to our integrity crisis. We have people doing this all the time, that they promise something and they are not fulfilling. We have uh, this, this integrity crisis means being honest and having strong moral principles. And for many of us, our integrity, which means uprightness, moral soundness, exists only as long as it is convenient. And for many of us, it's no longer convenient. And after a while, when we start to skirt the truth, it becomes easier and easier and easier to do so. I mean, one of the things that we struggle with, people that are always finding loopholes in the law, which means lawyers, right? Now, I'm sorry if there are any lawyers here, but I bet everyone in this room knows a good lawyer joke. You have a good lawyer joke? I got a good lawyer joke for you, right? Here's one. When do you know a lawyer is telling the truth? When his lips are closed. Okay? Not all lawyers are like this, but I have a friend who's a lawyer. And he says, the challenge to keep my integrity faces me every single day. He said, I'm supposed to bill so many hours, and that's every week and every month. He said, when they ask me to bill so many hours, if I were to really bill those hours, I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't spend time with my family. And so he told this one firm that he was with, he said, I can't do this, and they fired him. They dismissed him from the firm because every one of them were skirting the truth in order to get money. He could not in good conscience do it. He had a heart. Some people say that lawyers don't have hearts. Matter of fact, there's another joke. When uh, there's a story of a man who was having heart trouble, he went to the doctor to see what his options were. 
Naturally, the doctor recommended a heart transplant, and the man reluctantly agreed and asked if there were any hearts immediately available, considering that money was no object. I do have three hearts, said the doctor. The first is from an 18-year-old kid, non-smoker, athletic, swimmer with a great diet. He hit his head on the swimming pool and died. It's $100,000. The second is from a marathon runner, 25 years old, great condition, very strong. He got hit by a bus. It's $150,000. The third is from a heavy drinker, cigar smoker, steak lover. It's $500,000. Hey, the guy asked, why is that heart so expensive? He lived a terrible life. Yes, but it's from a lawyer. It's never been used. Now, that's not always true, obviously, because there are some lawyers that definitely have hearts. But we get frustrated with people trying to find loopholes in things, right? But yet, we ourselves, if we're to be very honest, are no different. We're doing it all the time, trying to find loopholes in fulfilling what we have promised to do. So really, when we we make those jokes, we're really, I mean, we're showing ourselves as well. Now, the reason that Jesus is drawing attention to our integrity crisis because it became it came as a result of a lack of credibility credibility see people had lost credibility so they had to make greater promises that they would fulfill what they were about to do because they didn't trust them because their character didn't match up have you ever had someone make a lot of promises but yet you didn't trust them because of their character i had a guy i went to school with high school classmates and a very young age we knew that he was a liar he lied all the time to get whatever he wanted. And he would lie. Uh, his parents were divorced. He would, uh, his father would hang out at the bar, so he would go and lie that his mom didn't give him any money, so his dad wouldn't. He would play the parents against each other. And he would lie to get whatever he wanted, to get ahead in classes, to get ahead in uh, life, whatever. And he gets older, and do you think the lies got smaller? They got bigger. He went so far as to fake cancer. So his grandparents would give him $25,000. Now, he would make all of these different boasts and say all of these different things and say, you know, I swear by this. But you knew that his life didn't back up his words. And that's how it was in Jesus' day. People had a credibility problem. He had a credibility problem. And when we lack credibility, we lack believability. That's the next part, believability. I remember doing, uh, when I was pastoring in Chicago, uh, we were doing a vacation Bible school one year. And we went door to door, knocking on people's houses, saying, would you come to our vacation Bible school? And one woman, older lady, opened the door. She goes, I'll come to your church on one condition. And I need you to answer this question. And she said, do you take care of the widows and the orphans? We said, no. She goes, thank you. Have a nice day. And that really was a jar to us to say, are we taking care of the least of these? Because in her mind, if you're not doing something the scripture is extremely clear about, then I can't rely on you for anything else. Your focuses are. So when we have a credibility problem, then and we have a believability problem. That's why people were swearing by the, the temple and the throne of God and all of these different things. So we have a credibility problem, a believability problem, and that because it's a big problem of reliability. People weren't following through with what they said they would do. We have this in our own day and age, and I'm afraid that each one of us has been guilty. I have. As I was even going through this text, I was just the reality of keeping our word and how much we are to do so was heavy upon me. 
Because, see, it has a way of finding us out. When we cut corners, it has a way of finding us out. As I was studying for this, I was reminded of the movie uh, The Emperor's Club. Don't know if you've ever seen this movie. Great film. It's got Kevin Kline in it. And he is a professor of classics at a prestigious prep school in New England in the 1970s. And he feels that his goal is not just to teach, but to mold these young men who are going to be the future leaders of our country, because many of them are the who's who of the very wealthy and educated elite, and they're in his class. So he sees it as his goal to mold and push these young men, to not just teach them information, but to mold their character, to teach them virtue, and show them what's really valuable. Well, there's one young man that ends up in his class that ends up causing him a great deal of problems. And his name is Sedgwick, Sedgwick Bell. And uh, this young man is a U.S. senator's son. He's a very cocky, know-it-all kid, and uh, he really could care less for this class. And he notices, the professor notices that, uh, that he doesn't care for anything, so he ends up contacting his father, and he says, you, you know, we want to try to mold him with virtue. And he goes, hold on. Your job isn't to give him virtue and teach him morality. Your job is just to give him information. Just do your job. And that really struck the teacher to the core because he really felt it was to mold this young man. And he was pushing all of his young men to compete in what is known as this contest called the Emperor's Club. And there would be three, uh, three at the end of the year, the three highest um, ranking students in the class could participate in this contest to be in the Emperor's Club. And they would, it would be a quiz on classic literature, the classics. And the winner would be crowned Mr. Julius Caesar. And so the, the, the Sedgwick Bell is not a very good student, but Kevin Klein, in spite of what Bell's father said, goes, I'm going to invest in this young man. I'm going to train him. I'm going to come alongside of him. And he, he did, and he saw that Bell mushroomed under his tutelage and paying attention to him. And he ended up going very high academically and became one of the three. And they entered into the contest together. And they had to wear togas and answer all of these questions. And as the, the, uh, Kevin Klein's character is asking them the questions, uh, one man misses and it's down to the final two. And he's noticing that Bell is answering questions that he's surprised he knows. And he figures out and notices, he keeps looking down and blinking, that he's cheating. So he asks a question that he knows that Bell won't get, but the other young man will. And, of course, Bell misses it and, and loses. And uh, the teacher is disheartened. But fast forward 25 years later, and Bell now has become a successful CEO. And he wants to make a huge donation to the school, and he wants to do it at a black tie affair. And, and the conditions upon receiving this huge financial gift to this cash-strapped school is that they can recreate the, the contest for the Emperor's Club again. And so he invites the professor back, and the professor's getting near retirement, kind of getting forced out, and, but he's so delighted to have his students remember and want to celebrate this. And so they have the contest again, and it comes down to the final two, which is Bell, and Bell's answering the questions well. And the teacher is so excited, but he notices that Bell has an earpiece. And he turns to the back of the room, and he sees there's a grad student typing up answers and communicating them to Bell. So even now, 25 years later, he's cheating. So the professor notices it again, asks a question that he knows that he won't answer, but the other young man will because it was something that was explicitly in the classroom that only the students that truly cared would know. Bell misses it again, but then takes, it, takes the opportunity, even as his loss, to announce that he's going to run for his father's seat in the U.S. Senate. And the, Kevin Klein is disheartened, and he goes to the restroom, and as he's washing his hands, and he's thinking, Bell walks in, he goes, are you okay? He said, you know, I know you cheated. 
And he said, I have to apologize to you because I failed you as a teacher. And he said, uh, one day it's going to come back to you because you have failed to understand virtue and being good. And the bell responds and goes, you're an idiot. He goes, I live in the real world where people do whatever they can to get ahead. And you know what? My face, I'm going to win that election, and my face is going to be plastered all over, and you're going to have to look at it. No one cares for your morality. And as soon as he says that, they hear a toilet flush. And out of the stall comes a little boy, and it's Bell's son. He'd heard the entire thing. And Bell stops, and he calls for his son, and the boy just walks away because he's mortified. See, when we have an integrity crisis, we might get ahead in the eyes of the world. But in in the eyes of those who truly matter, we're lost. Especially in the eye of God. Because God's the one who sees the heart. And then we can't trust those that we've seen do those kind of things. That their character doesn't back up their actions. So we have a reliability action. The problem. But when our character matches up, we gain credibility, believability, then reliability. I can't help but think of Joseph, who's a great example of integrity and reliability. This is the guy who gets sold into slavery in Egypt, and he he ends up doing nothing but good, and, and so much so that Potiphar, who he's working for, entrusts everything to his care, and this is what we read in Genesis 39, 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And we obviously, if you know the story, that he was accused of uh, raping his, uh, or trying to rape his, attempted rape of his uh, master's wife, which wasn't true. He goes into prison, and again, he's such a man of integrity that what does the jailer do? Look at this. The jailer then, he says, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Lord made it succeed. And then he, he continues to be faithful, and then he gets exalted to Pharaoh's court, where he becomes second in charge of all of Egypt. See, when you, have a, when you have your character straight, let God be your defender. You don't need to be. You don't need to take foolish oaths, which is what people were doing, because really, uh, taking oaths was not about the oath per se. It was about integrity. That's what they were violating. So we have to follow through with what we say we're going to do and then let God exalt us. The problem is, is we feel that we're being taken advantage of and no one's acting on our behalf, so we feel like we need to take the steering wheel, if we will, because we don't like where God's taking us. So we try to yank it back, but God has a plan. I mean, I'm sure Joseph, when he was in prison, wasn't saying to himself, God has a wonderful plan for my life. He had to suffer. Now see, today, we don't like that. We feel like we have to assert our rights and what we want and how everybody else has disappointed us. And God is saying, entrust yourself to me. You focus on me, everything else will be taken care of. When you take care of your relationship with me and your heart with me, I'll take care of the rest. You might suffer, but I'm the one paying attention and I'm the only one that truly matters. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's what it's about, right? What God thinks. Not what anyone else thinks. The problem is, is we put more esteem on what others think than we do what God thinks. What God thinks is what truly, truly matters. But what then does Christ mean? Is it 
what's he saying about oath sin? I mean, we know it's about integrity, but is he prohibiting every oath? Does that mean that I can't swear on the Bible and say, to, I, I promise or swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And what does that else does that extend to? What about contracts? Those are vows, because a vow is technically a solemn promise. Or what about marriage vows? You know, some groups have taken this scripture to say no oath whatsoever. Groups like the Anabaptists, the Quakers, and even Mennonites say that they can never have any type of vow or oath ever for anything, period. Is that what Jesus is referring to? That we can never give any oath whatsoever? He says, let your yes be yes or your no be no. So what does it, does it mean? Does it really mean that he has no oaths whatsoever? Well, let's take a moment to unpack Christ's charge. That's the next point that I want you to write down. We need to be unpacking this charge that Jesus has given to us and see exactly what he is saying for us and how we might apply it in our time. First of all, we have to understand that this charge is not meant to be a complete prohibition. Is not meant to be a complete prohibition. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, um, scholar who is now, pastor scholar who is now with Jesus of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he said this on this passage. He said, in Palestine, in the time of Jesus, there were two unsatisfactory things about the taking of oaths. The first was what William Barclay calls frivolous swearing. That is, taking an oath when it was neither necessary nor proper. People who did this swore by their life, or whatever it might be, for almost nothing. The result was that even the most solemn statements appeared to be on this level also. In opposition to this, Jesus often insisted, as many of the rabbis did also, that the use of an oath to substantiate a simple statement was wrong. Now, the second perversion of the proper use of oath by the people of Christ's time was worse. It was evasive swearing. People who were afraid to swear by the name of the Lord because they were not telling the full truth began to swear by things, and because mere things were not thought to be as significant as the name of God, the second class of oaths was not considered to be binding. Some persons swore by their own life, as we can see in 1 Samuel 1.26, or by their health, Psalm 15.4. Others swore by the king, 1 Samuel 17.55. And still others swore, as Jesus indicates, by their head, the earth, heaven, the temple, or Jerusalem. So we can see that not all oaths were prohibited, because we see Paul commanding the people to be put under oath. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all their brothers. So we see then that he is performing an oath. And even God himself in Hebrews chapter 6 performs an oath to, to have Christ be the high priest, that he will be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And even in Matthew chapter 26, Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath. We can see this right here. Let's call that up. Matthew 26. There it is. Woe to you. Uh, actually, not this one. The next one. The 26, not Matthew 23. As he's calling that up, uh, that's Matthew 12. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Matthew 26. Is it in there? Okay, it's not in there? All right. Uh, it's when Caiaphas is talking to Jesus, and he says, I swear to you, this is in um, uh, Matthew 26, I want to say 73 off the top of my head. He goes, I charge you, or I adjure you, in the presence of God, are you God's Christ? Now, it's interesting. Literally translated, it, it goes, I swear you, calling you to swear, or I charge you right now. 
and it's the rabbinical form of directly affirming an oath. Christ responded to Caiaphas. He says, I am, or you say that I am. He undertook an oath with what he was saying was true, and that the virtue of his deity, priesthood, and trial, Christ swore. So in other words, what we're seeing here is that it wasn't a prohibition that Jesus is talking about for all oath, but it's understanding that that there are flippant things that we say every day. That's not what he's talking about. But he, he's basically saying this, let your character be of such that you don't need to do it. If you have to do it in a court of law, that's one thing. Or a marriage vow, that's something else. But let your life be so representative of the name of Christ that you never have to do that. It's like David, uh, I'm going to call on David for a second. Um, when, you remember when we had the uh, series, um, for those that were here, was Haggai? And we had the doors up here for those who were here. And they said, your way, my way, and God's way. The funny thing was, is David had painted it. Do you remember this, David? He painted it. And he goes, uh, I, I didn't know that he painted it. So he walks up to me, and he goes, tell me what you think of the doors. I walked up, and I went, they're ugly. And he goes, I did it. I'm like, I'm sorry. He goes, no, that's why I asked you, because I know you would tell me the truth. Even with my wife, okay? I, my wife asked me questions. Does this make me look good? <laughs> What do you say, gentlemen? <laughs> now, I've learned to say to my wife, though, it says, honey, I like that outfit, or I don't like that outfit, because I think this looks better on you. But we've had that over and over and over again. And she says, thank you. And it goes on. And she, it's been appreciative, because I've been honest with her. I'm not, I mean, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying, I don't think that looks as good on me. That's it. That's all you have to say. So, we see here, let's, let's continue on. We can see that making an oath or vow was not an outright prohibition. What was meant was flipping oaths and integrity in all things. Not the denial of oaths altogether. And additionally, an oath or vow gives us definite parameters. Gives us definite parameters. It shows where we end and where we begin. If you have to do it, then you, it shows what you are to do. It focuses. In a court of law, the person is giving an oath. To tell the unvarnished truth, nothing but the truth. They're not giving an oath of what they will do in the future. See, that's another aspect of these oaths. These people are saying what they were going to be doing. They're just saying is, I'm going to give a record of what just occurred. Or what I saw or what I am witness to. So we see that they're definite parameters. Now, it was, all, it was to focus a person. And it also helped to prevent foolish promises we can't fulfill. Prevent foolish promises that we can't fulfill. How many of us have made promises that we've not fulfilled? Me. I'm very careful of what I say I will do now. When people come up to me and they say, pray for me, I say, I'll try to remember. Because if I say, yeah, and then I forget about it. And then I see the person later and they're like, thank you for praying. And I'm like, I didn't pray. And we do that all the time, do we not? See, Jesus is saying, no, don't say stuff flippantly. Understand what you're saying. Today, words can be meaningless. We want them, it's whatever we want them to mean. Remember to look back at our uh, past president who said, um, can you define the word is, please? Remember when President Clinton did that and he was being impeached? Can you define the word is? See, we, we're to that point where people's words don't mean anything. And it's all about who can, who can distort or put their word of truth and who can define the terms. But see, God defines the terms. For the Christian, God defines them. 
God is the one through his word that has shown us how we are to live and how we are to be. We have to draw the meaning out, not put meaning in. That's why we have to be very careful with what we say and what we vow, because God is paying attention. That's why marriage vows are utmost, of the utmost I mean, seriousness, serious nature. That's why in the book of Ecclesiastes we read this. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. He goes on. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So what God is saying there is just be very careful in what you say. Don't be frivolous. Don't make promises that you have never meant to keep. Be very serious in understanding what words mean. That's why we have to, or as Jesus says, I want to show you this in Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit ba- good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Think about that. Every careless word. Not one will be missed. That scares you. That's very scary. Think about some of the things that we've said about our boss, spouse, children, about your pastor. There's a lot of things that we say. We have to be very careful with what we say. Vows also are meant to cause us to perform all we have pledged to do. Now, these are the good vows. And again, if you have to give a vow, that's the caveat for this entire thing. Vows are also meant to cause us to perform all we are pledged to do. I can't but help think of George Washington, the first president of the United States. He had the gift of what the founding fathers called of silence. Many of them were, the founding fathers were great uh, orators. And all very, I mean, so often they would look over and Washington would be completely silent. He was a great listener. And people would continually uh, go to him because he was so good at keeping his mouth shut. And he also would follow through with what he said he would do. He was one who who said, uh, and there was this debate when the first president was being um, elected or appointed into office, how long does he serve for? And the founding fathers were debating was it for life, like the kings of old, or was it for a period of time? And even then, no, I mean, only one other person that they could think of in history had been given power like this and then stepped away. That's why he was called Cincinnatus. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cincinnatus, but Cincinnatus was, was a, um, had been a Roman general who had retired to be a farmer, and then when Rome was being attacked, they called him out of retirement to be complete dictator. And he was, and he repelled the invasion, and then he 
gave up power and went right back into farming. And then another invasion came. They called him to be dictator again. He steps up, becomes dictator, and he totally withstands the invasion, puts it down, and then he retires again. And no one had ever seen this because once people get power, what do they want to do? Hold on to it. They don't want to let it go. And here he is relinquishing it. And with Washington, people kept accusing him of being a, a, a monarch or a king. And what does he do at the end of four years? I mean, at the end of two terms, he steps away. He relinquished power. He performed what he would said he would do when he gave his oath of office. He promised to uphold the Constitution and fulfill his duty. He also would give up power. Give up power. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's us following through with our commitments. Following through with our commitments. We are to do what we say and mean what we say. And again, how often we have not done that. I think of the movie, the kids' movie, Pixar movie, Cars. Anybody seen Cars? Okay, in the movie, one of the, the interesting things is with Lightning McQueen, and he, uh, obviously, he gets stuck in Radiator Springs, and he befriends um, a local townie tow truck named Mater. Right? And they're cruising around, and they're doing stuff, and he's talking about how he's going to get back on top. And uh, Mater asks him, he says, Hey, you think maybe one day I can ride in one of the helicopters? I mean, I've always wanted to ride in one of them fancy helicopters. And McQueen says, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Mater goes, you mean it? Oh, yeah, anything you say. I knew it. I know what I made a good choice. McQueen says, in what? He goes, my best friend. And then Mater leaves. He goes off celebrating. And um, Sally, the Porsche character played by Bunny Hunt, appears. And she says, I just overheard you talking to Mater. When? Just now? What, 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 what did you hear? And she goes, oh, just something about a helicopter ride. He goes, oh, yeah, he got a kick out of that, didn't he? And then she asked the question, did you mean it? What? That you'll give him a, a ride. Oh, who knows? I mean, first things first, I got to get out of here and make the race. She goes, you know, made her trust you. Yeah, okay. Do you mean that? What? Was it just a yeah, okay, or a yeah, okay, or a yeah, yeah, okay? He goes, look, I'm tired. It's kind of been a long day. And she goes, yeah, okay, good night. Now, the point is, is that he just frivolously said something, and we say that all the time. How many of, sometimes a friend has come to you, or they said, can you do this for me? And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And you don't mean it. Or your children. I, I've done this with my kids. I'll, I'll promise I'll help you with that tomorrow. Or the next day. Or to my wife, I promise I'll remove the ice from the van tomorrow so you don't slip and fall. And what did I do? I forgot. Very careful. Have to, we have to be very careful in the promises we make. Just what Jesus is saying. As Christians, we must be people of our word and follow through with our commitments. And if we're to follow through with our commitments, then that involves remembering our salvation. Remembering our salvation. Now, I put that in here because we have to remember who it is we belong to. Not to whom others belong, but to whom we belong. It's like my daughter came to me one day, and she said that she'd gotten in trouble, and she starts telling about what everybody else in class had done. And I said, you know, I don't care what they have done. I care what you have done, because you're my daughter. They're not my kids. I don't care how they behave. I care how you behave. And that's what God is saying to us. He's saying that you're my children. How do you behave? If, you, if I have saved you, are you behaving as a citizen of the kingdom that I have purchased for you. Now, secondly, 
we must make sure that we are to be checking our motivation. Checking our motivation. Not just remembering our salvation, but checking our motivation. Why do we feel like we have to make promises? Why do you feel like you have to make promises like that to get people to believe you? What is it in your character that is deficient? When have you failed in your promises? What do you need to do to go back and make it right? Do you have to reconcile something? Do you have to follow through with something that you were to do a long time ago? Do you have to apologize and ask for forgiveness for something? I mean, why do you make promises like that? Is it because you want, is it your pride? You want people to think better of you? Or is it you're trying to hide something? Still, it's pride because you want them to think better of you than it is. The question is, is what does God think? What does God think? He's the only one that truly matters in that regard. We have to check our motivation. I mean, think about it. Peter made an oath. Peter made an oath. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 72, when he makes an oath, he is, he is uh, confronted, and he's fearful. He says, uh, they come to him, and they say, surely you were with Jesus. And he says, no. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man, because he was afraid. And sometimes we do that. We say things because we're afraid, or we want, again, people to think better of us than we really are. And God is saying, no, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your life be in such a way that your word becomes your bond and live in such a way that it causes unbelievers to question their unbelief. Whenever we catch ourselves wanting to say things or manipulate people to do our will by invoking the name of God or making a vow, we must stop and ask God to reveal to us our true heart motivation. And then he will show us our pride or fear, and then we must... ask for him the strength to do what is right. We must make every effort to be guarding our conversation. Guarding our conversation. Let your words be few. Watch your mouth. As the Bible says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Guard your words. Don't Go around spewing promises that you don't plan on keeping. Say, I'll try. I'll try. If you fail, you're not only hurting yourself, but those around you. Now, the last thing that we can do is make sure that we are keeping our word without hesitation. Keeping our word without hesitation. We can see this in Psalm chapter 15, verse 1 through 5. The psalmist writes about, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live in your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. Who speaks the truth from their heart. Whose tongue utters no slander. Who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. He goes on. Who despises a vile person but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Who lends money to the poor without interest. Who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be Shaken. Notice that part right there. Who keeps his word even when it hurts, or keeps his oath even when it hurts. Have you ever tried to keep your word even when it's painful to do so? Even when it's not convenient or it's not comfortable? Or even though circumstances have changed, you promise to fulfill what you have said? You know, the integrity crisis that we have is not in the world, because the world is behaving as it's going to be, it's in the church. How often as we as believers have failed in that? How often have I failed? And I know I have. 
And as I was going through the sermon, I kept being impacted and challenged by God having to ask for forgiveness because of not following through with everything that I said I would do. We have to consider the weight of our words because words have meaning. Because when we just say whatever, then words, words lose their meaning. I've shared in here before, one of the things I say, tell of my kids is we be very, we're very careful in my family how we use the word love. Use the word love. We don't say, I love that shirt. Or I love that jacket. Or I love those pants. We don't say that. We use that word exclusively for one another. Because when we use that word, we are showing that it means something different. Because when I hear, I love you, and I just heard him talking about, oh, I love that jacket. I, what does that mean? It means nothing. But when I do say that word, they know it means something. Something different. Something special. Because we're placing emphasis on it. Words have meaning. And when we say things, we need to make sure that we fulfill what we say in every which way. If we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, if Christ has given his life for us, paid the price for our sins on the cross, then we can, cannot continue in lies. John chapter 8, verse 44, and this is not in your notes. Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies. Jesus says, I am the way, in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. We are to behave as children of light and children of truth. Children of truth. Being honest. Being honest. Are you honest? Are you a person of integrity? D.L. Moody, the great 19th century evangelist, said, um, character is who you are in the dark. When no one's looking. Who are you when no one's looking? Are you a person of your word? Are you following through with what you say? Do you need to go back and confess to someone and ask for their forgiveness? Because your testimony is at stake. You're a representative of Christ, whether you want to be or not, because Jesus says you are the light of the world, because he is the light of the world. And if you have claimed his name and his spirit is in you, you are a light whether you want to be or not. How much is your light showing and shining unto others? What do you need to do what do you need to go back and fulfill? You need to do so. Don't wait. Ask for forgiveness if necessary. And do what you need to do in order to reestablish and get credibility. One of the things I neglected to tell at the beginning of this, when I was going for jury duty, I uh, turned on my car to heat it up. So I'd get in the warm car because it was so cold outside. My car had heated up, and I get in the car, and I... I have just enough time to get there, and I put it in reverse, and then I feel there, there was ice, and my tires were getting bald, and they had no traction. And I, I, then I went into panic mode. I start throwing like whatever I can underneath the wheel to catch it. Nothing works. I'm turning each way. I'm trying to push my car by myself. I'm looking like a complete idiot. Finally, I just said, nuts, and I turn off the car, I get in my wife's van, and I put it in drive. The car's not warmed up or anything, and the great thing goes right out. Now, what was the difference between the two? One had new tires. See, that's what credibility is. It gives you traction. See, when we have gone telling, not telling the truth for so long, the tires are spinning, and we can't catch. We can't be effective, and we can't move on in our life. 
What we need to do is reestablish credibility. And we do that through confessing our sins unto the Lord and seeking restitution with others. And then through time, we establish integrity. And then we build traction. And then we can handle and weather the toughest storms that are thrown at us for his glory and our joy. Amen? Amen. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Father, this is a tough word. Seeing what you have laid forth for us and how we are to live and how we are to let our yes be yes and no be no and not try to gain people's approval by swearing by different things, but have our character be in such a way that we have traction wherever we go. Lord, I pray that you use us. Help us to be people of truth, to forsake lying, to forsake mistruths or partial truths or not telling the complete truth. But may we be truth because we know that you desire truth in the inner person. And help us to be true in our walk with you in the inner person. Help us to walk right with you, to know and remember that we are living our life before the audience of one. Help us to abandon our pride, to leave it aside. Help us to have the strength and the courage to go back and seek reconciliation or make confession when necessary. And Lord, from this time forth, may we live our life in such a way that our word becomes our bond and that people take seriously all that we say we're going to do. And when we fail, when we screw up and we're bound to, forgive us and help us to do what is necessary to be made right with you and with man for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.